You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. I have um, I've spent some time in Colorado, Washington, Wyoming, but I'm not sure if I've ever been above 10,000 feet, but I know that some of you have. How many of you have been above 10,000 feet at some point? Okay, a bunch of you. All right. Well, I haven't done anything quite that impressive. I've been at the Dead Sea, though. That is negative 1,400 feet, so that's, that's something, I guess. The highest mountain on earth is, of course, debatable, actually. It's, uh, it's debatable. It depends on how you measure. If you measure just from base to peak, then it's a mountain called uh, Mauna Kea, which wins because it starts, well, actually way down in the ocean and goes up. And the reason why we don't think of it is because half of it is underwater, but it's actually quite high. The highest mountain, if you were to measure from the center of the earth, because apparently, we learned this this morning, uh, is not exactly spherical. Uh, and so if you measure from the very center of the earth, which I don't know exactly how you would do that, but it's Mount Chimborazo. All right? And so the highest mountain that most of us think of, of course, is Mount Everest, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 29,000 feet. Now, the first two people to famously summit Everest did so in 1953. They were a man from New Zealand named Sir Edmund Hillary and a Sherpa mountain guide named Tenzig Norgay. As soon as they ascended and then descended the mountain, they became quite famous virtually overnight, and pictures like we have one picture here of them, this sort of made the rounds about these conquering heroes. Now, the press had an absolute field day asking them all kinds of questions, including who got there first? And for years, they wouldn't say which one of them actually took the first step onto the mountain peak, and I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to look that up later on your own. But they went up there, and as they were being asked all these questions by the press, they kept trying to deflect. Because what they said was, yes, we may have been the first two to the top, but you don't get to the top of Everest quickly or alone. In fact, you don't get there even with just two people. There was an entire team of support behind them and multiple base camps along the way before they ultimately made their final ascent. Now, Chuck Swindoll, who's an older pastor guy, author extraordinaire from, uh, from Texas, he's in his 80s now, but he described the chapters that we are studying a little bit like trying to summit Everest. And along the way, there are multiple base camps where you stop. And he said a lot of people will quit on this journey because it's simply too arduous to make your way through Romans 9, 10, and 11, particularly if you're somebody like me who is uh, painfully Gentile. Uh, Like many of us are in this room, we're Gentiles, and so we read all of this stuff about Israel in these three chapters, and we're kind of like, okay, that's an interesting theological footnote, but it doesn't feel terribly applicable to my life. And yet Swindoll, as he describes this, he says, as you're going up, you have to keep hanging on for this beautiful ending at the end of chapter 11, the summit of this section, if you will. And I read this to you last week, but let's, let's see the end again. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We read that, we go, wow, that's, that's beautiful. But on the way there, there are a few stops that we have to make. Now, all throughout this letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul has been telling Christians that you are the new creation. You are the new family of God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, he treats you just as if you never sinned, just as if you've always obeyed. You are made one of God's people. And for those of us who are biblically thoughtful, we're like, this is amazing. But also, what about his other people? I mean, there's this whole Old Testament thing where it talks about God's family, his chosen people, and that's Israel. It's not people who believe in Jesus, at least. We didn't think so when we were reading those Old Testament texts. So what about them? And can we be sure that God is faithful when it seems like there's a whole bunch of these Jewish folks who don't even know Jesus? So does that mean then that they're not saved? And this is the question that is underlying these chapters that Paul addresses. And on the way, we get to these base camps. Now, uh, in, in Swindoll's way of thinking, base camp one, and we talked about this a little bit last week, chapter nine is God's sovereignty. As you read chapter nine, it's all about how in control and capable God is and how he is the author and the perfecter of our faith, that, that he is the one that does it. And there's all this language in there that we looked at a little bit last week where it just shows how, how much God has control of the great plan. Chapter 10, where we'll be today, is base camp number two. And if on one hand is God's sovereignty, on the other hand then is human responsibility. So if camp one is sovereignty, camp two is responsibility. How do we understand our responsibility in God's great plan? Well, today, to try to figure this out, we're going to look at this in three ways. Wrong righteousness, received righteousness, and the responsibility of the righteous. Those are kind of the three things we're going to look at. Let's start with wrong righteousness. Now, what does the word righteousness mean? This is like a favorite word of Paul's. You find it all over Romans, so we should probably know what it means as we're looking at it. Well, it comes from a Greek word, dikaiosunein. And this Greek word basically is suggesting this idea of doing right. To be righteous, you must do right by the people that you're around. You have to do right by them. Now, this looks different depending on who those people are. So righteous behavior on my part looks one way to my wife, it looks a little bit different to my children, a little bit different to church folks, a little bit different to strangers. Like in each situation, I have to interact, react the right way. Now there are some underlying principles that should carry me throughout my entire life, but the way that I respond and treat people is a little different depending on the circumstances. Think, maybe this is helpful, maybe it's not, but, but think a little bit about uh, the clothing that you wear. You wear different clothing to different situations. And some clothing is appropriate in one setting that wouldn't be appropriate in another setting. I mean, for example, a bathing suit on the beach can be appropriate. They're not all appropriate, but they can be appropriate. But a bathing suit is not appropriate for a business interview. I imagine even if you are interviewing at the Speedo Corporation, you should probably wear pants. That's, I'm assuming, how you would go to get a job. You would never show up to a wedding or something like that wearing what's appropriate. You, you would wear something different. At Pastor Pat's 
funeral uh, a month and a half ago or so, a mutual friend of ours, a pastor, showed up wearing jeans, uh, blue and uh, maize and blue sneakers, and a Michigan champion uh, t-shirt on and a hat, a Michigan hat. Well, and he looked around, and the rest of us were, well, we were at a funeral, so we were dressed like we were at a funeral. And I saw him, and I was like, oh, that's cute, because, you know, Pat was a big Michigan fan, and they just won the championship and all. I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. I gave him a hug, and I thought it was great, whatever. Well, later I talked to him, and he said, I felt so foolish wearing that. He said, I thought other people were going to be wearing the same thing. And then I showed up and realized, oh, oh, this is, this is like the black and gray suit zone. That's where I should have been, not in this. He felt that he didn't dress appropriately for the situation. Have you ever been dressed inappropriately for something? And I don't mean like you're out, out of the bounds of modesty. I just mean you show up and you're like, I'm underdressed. I'm overdressed. This isn't exactly right for this situation. Well, what biblical righteousness means is that you are exactly right in every situation. And actually, it's not even just externally. At every level of your heart and your life, in every situation where you find yourself, you are exactly right. You are perfect. You do right by those people. And of course, in Paul's way of thinking and in our way of thinking, for many of us, the only one who's ever right all the time is God. His character becomes the measure of righteousness by which the rest of us must be measured because God always responds the right way. He always does the right thing. He always does right by himself, by creation, by humanity. He is the measure by which all other measures are measured. So for you and I to be righteous, we can't only consult our own hearts or our ideas or our feelings. Those things are fine and nice. But to be truly righteous, we must look to the character of God and then act with God-like consistency, character, and care for every person with whom we interact. This is true righteousness, and that is a rather tall order. It means that we meet all the requirements. We measure up. Notice what Paul says here about some Jewish folks. So this is Romans chapter 10. If you haven't opened there already, it's page 946. This is Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We mentioned this last week, but the Apostle Paul is brokenhearted over the fact that many Jewish people that he knows are not truly righteous. They have pursued the wrong kind of righteousness. And he says, they have zeal, they're passionate, they're trying to do a lot of the right things, they're hardworking, they, they might be really kind, they're whatever, they're like, they're great, but they're extremely zealous in pursuing self righteousness. They're trying to find their own righteousness. They're trying to measure up on their own. They're trying to strive. They're trying to claw their way to the top of Everest, if you will. They're trying to get to that place where they can say, ah, now here is where I've arrived. And in fact, when you read through the Bible at some of the scribes and the Pharisees, they're like the most righteous ones out there. They sort of treat other people and talk to people as if, 
Oh, you, you pagan Gentiles or you lowly uh, Jewish people that don't follow all the rules like us, you are like at the Dead Sea level of spirituality and I, I'm up here at the peak of Everest. Well, guess what? If you're at the Dead Sea or the peak of Everest, you're still about 93 million miles away from the sun. Like, nobody's impressed by how you're 29,000 feet closer to the sun. You're still impossibly far away from getting where you need to be. And that is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul knew a bunch of really amazing, zealous Jewish folks who climbed, clawed, and scrambled their way towards righteousness, but they could never measure up. They would never be good enough. They would never be truly acceptable to God, and they were ignorant of God's standard, Jesus Christ. The righteousness that they chased was the wrong righteousness. They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. Have you ever been sincerely wrong before? Have you ever believed something so deeply and you're like, no, I know this is true. And you will go to your grave that it's true until you realize, no, I'm wrong. I'm actually very, very wrong. So uh, about a week ago, a friend and I, we, uh, we, we, were, we were going fishing. We were taking the kids. And we put the trailer on the back of his truck. And uh, as we were getting ready to drive away, he said, uh, did we push down the latch and insert the pin in the trailer? And I said, well, I, I mean, I assume so. I always do that when I put a trailer on. He says, yeah, I always do that too. He said, but did you put the safety pin thing in the trailer? And I said, well, I can't remember doing that, but had I taken it out, I'm sure that I would have because why wouldn't you put a safety pin in a trailer? And he said, I don't know. He goes, what will happen if you don't put the safety? I said, well, this one time I uh, had a trailer pop off and dragged behind the car and it threw a lot of sparks. It made a great story. Now, time out. You would think that a human being with a history of making that kind of mistake might go, you know what, we should pull over and check. But we didn't. And so we drove, and you're like, did you make it? We made it, we're fine, we, we survived. But we got there and we noticed, oh, nobody had put the safety pin in. And do you know where that safety pin was? Right latched to the trailer where I had been standing. So do you know who didn't put it in? The guy that could have passed a lie detector test on the way up there saying, I didn't touch it. I, I, no, no, I had nothing to do with it. I had something to do with it. I was wrong. Now, now, I believed I was right. I was sincere. I could have been zealous if you held a gun to me. I said, come on now, go ahead. I'm, I did not do that. I was wrong. You can be sincerely wrong. You have been sincerely wrong. The Apostle Paul goes, there's these amazing, hardworking, brilliant, kind, smart confident, like many of the people in our world, Jewish folks, that I know, because they're a lot like I was before I met Jesus on the road miraculously, but they pursued the wrong righteousness. They did it ignorantly. They're trying to climb the mountain as if that will get them to the sun, and they missed it. They've climbed to great heights, but they've missed the invitation True righteousness was only achieved by one, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who in Paul's words is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So there's a wrong righteousness. Well, then what is part two, the received righteousness? Part two, the received righteousness. 
So if the Jewish folks, or any of us for that matter, couldn't earn righteousness through following the Old Testament law, then how can we become righteous? Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There is only one way to become righteousness, and it is not through hard work and following the Old Testament law perfectly. Paul says here what he said elsewhere, that righteousness cannot be earned. It can only be received as a gift. The Lord bestows his riches on all who call on him. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We just receive this righteousness. We'll never be good enough or acceptable or treated as if we never sinned unless we receive this from God with faith. Now, it, you don't apply for salvation like applying to a college that is uh, so rigorous that you wouldn't even think you could get into. And then you, you're like, I, you know, I'm, but I'm going to try to prove that I'm good enough and maybe they'll let me in. That's, that's not what salvation is. Salvation is it just this gift that comes to us that we had nothing to do with. And when we call on the Lord, we are saved. We receive this by faith. And this is true of everyone, whether they are Jewish or Gentile. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I don't think here he's trying to say the heart and the mouth. There's like this two-step process. I think what he's saying is you have to be captured by the gift of Jesus. And be willing to even say that out loud. And then you can know that you are saved and you will not be put to shame. There's a website called uh, Answering Islam. It has a number of articles on it and links to videos and stuff like that. And one of the guys who has a bunch of videos out there who's part of this, his name's Sam, and he's pretty intense. Uh, and, and some of the videos that he's in are like uh, really intense, and I'm like, I don't know if you should have done that, Sam. But he's brilliant, and he's amazing in a lot of ways. And so he'll talk to people, uh, generally Muslims, and they'll talk about, like, the Bible and the Quran, and he'll kind of work them through the history, and he'll constantly challenge them on their own word and their own laws and their own traditions and who Muhammad was and all this stuff. And there's a number of times after they've argued for a while, and sometimes, like I said, it gets really kind of crazy, but there are a number of times where the person on the other end of the conversation finally goes, okay, I think I'm in. And when they do that, often Sam will quote this verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he says, if this is serious in your heart, you need to say, Jesus is Lord. And for a lot of them, there's a very high cost that's going to come if they say that simple phrase out loud. 
And yet, in a number of cases, they do, and it's incredibly powerful. And when you think about what it means for them in their context, it's even more powerful. And I love that the Apostle Paul says, they will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They have received Christ's righteousness in that moment. Their sins placed on him, his righteousness is placed on them. But not everybody who hears this message is going to receive it. If you skip down to the end of the chapter, here's what Paul says in verse 18. I ask, he's talking about the Jewish folks here, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What Paul says is that the people of Israel have heard and they have simply not submitted to the offer of Christ's righteousness. They just can't allow it. Now, recently I happened upon, there, there's a video, and I found one that's similar to it. Don't play it just yet, Robert, but there's one similar to it. And the video was, maybe you've seen this before, it was of a small child who needed, like, glasses to help them see better. And no child wants to have glasses forced onto their face. But as I was watching this play out, I thought, that is what salvation is, as the child fought and fought and fought, and then all of a sudden, well, just take a look at this quick little video. Yeah. Look, look at mommy. Look at mommy. Ooh. Look at that. <laughs> I mean, that, is that not a picture of salvation? <laughs> that it's like, no, I don't want to see. I can climb on my own. I'm righteous. I can do this. I can... Oh... Oh, now, now I see. And everyone who stops fighting and says, okay, Jesus, I'm calling on your name. And their eyes get wide and their heart believes and they say, Jesus is Lord. They get his righteousness in that moment. No longer the self-righteousness, the wrong righteousness, the all the other righteousness. They get Christ's. Righteous. You and I, if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, it's ours. It's ours. Well, then what is our responsibility? Part three, our responsibility. The first question that probably we all need to ask is, are we still fighting? Are we still fighting? Because I know that some of us are. I know that in this room there are some of you, and listening online, <clears throat> who are like investigating and interested, but the idea of sort of quitting, trying to get your own righteousness, it like, you're just not there yet. You just can't lay down yourself just yet and receive. And so my question to you before we get into the responsibility that those of us who've done this have is, are you still trying to climb Everest and thinking that you can reach the sun? Because in a lot of ways, by the university standards and your political tribe's standards and our culture standards, you might get way higher than the rest of us in some senses. 
but you will not get to the Son. Only the Spirit can take you there. So have you received the righteousness that he's offering? That's really the first question. Now, if you have, if you have received Christ's offer of life, then there is, for those of us who've done this, an incredible responsibility that we're supposed to share together to be part of God's plan of salvation. Now, last week, I got up here and I confessed that I get really crabby about uh, one person in particular uh, who hasn't yet come to faith, and, and I talked about this friend. And it was interesting because I had two people come up to me and go, oh, I know who you're talking about. And they were actually saying two different people. So apparently I got crabby about lots of people. <laughs> and so my challenge to us was don't be like Ty, be like Paul, and pray. Just pray like crazy for those who are still far, who are still fighting, that they would see and they'd have this, this moment. But beyond praying, what can we do? The reality is in a church like ours, there's a few of us that fall into the category of what is affectionately referred to as the, uh, the frozen chosen. Have you guys, anybody heard of this before, the frozen chosen? Uh, great band name, but uh, the frozen chosen... The idea behind the frozen chosen is this, that there are some people who know Jesus well, who, who have like committed their lives to Christ, but somewhere along the line, they become so convinced of God's sovereignty, which we should be, that they've forgotten about the other side of the coin, which is human responsibility, where they go, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, so what difference does it make what I do? I mean, I can just like do me. I can just like build my mini little kingdom while saying, yes, Jesus, I love you, whatever, show up to church. I can do all of that and God's going to do his thing and he's going to save whoever he's going to save. And you might even read chapter nine of Romans like last week and go, well, it just seems like we don't make much difference in this grand plan of God's. But look at what Paul says. Paul believes in the sovereignty of God and he should and we should. But look what he says. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Paul is totally convinced that God's sovereign, and yet he's also totally convinced that he has a role to play in God's plan of salvation for the world around him. And he quotes this text in Isaiah 52. And I love this text because Isaiah in Isaiah 52, he's talking about a future event. And he says, someday Jerusalem is going to get totally destroyed and trashed, and many of the people are going to get exiled out, and people are going to be dead, and it's going to be disastrous. And those that are left, this small, faithful remnant in Jerusalem, They're going to wonder, like, did God abandon us? Does he not care anymore? I look around at the world and everybody's going crazy. I just don't know if our God is still there and trustworthy. And in that day, when it feels like all hope is lost, and he's like, ah, he says, in that day, I want you to know, there's going to be this moment where one of the watch guys who's up in the tower and he's like looking out there trying to see if an enemy's coming, he's going to see somebody running. And the person running is not going to be in military gear and they're not going to be like the announcement of, oh, here comes another attack. But instead, they're going to be saying, good news, good news. 
And they're going to come and they're going to talk about how faithful and good God is and that rescue is on its way. And there's going to be a small group of people like, I can't even believe this, but how beautiful. Uh, look, at the guy, look at this messenger's feet. He's been running across mountaintops. He's battered. He's dirty. He's disgusting. And what good news he brings. And he uses that prophecy to say, are your feet dirty? Are they? Are you being sent by God? Because Paul didn't seem to think, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, so there's nothing for me to do. No, no. He said, people can only be saved through believing God's word. Well, how are they going to even know what God's word is? Well, they have to hear it. Well, how are they going to hear it? Well, somebody better be preaching it to them. Well, how is someone going to preach it? Well, somebody better send preachers to them. Guess what? You're sent. You're sent. As soon as the service ends, sorry. You are sent. I don't have to preach again. I just send out the however many people come here, preachers, into the world. You and I and Paul have this great responsibility to carry the message of Christ wherever we are. Do you ever think about, why am I here in Ann Arbor? Why, why, why am I here wherever you are online, people? Why am I here? You know what the answer is? It is not to get a degree. Degree is great. Finish the degree or not, whatever. Do, do, do you, do you. It's not just to make money. Making money is great. Make a bunch of money. That's, that's cool, whatever. Just give a lot of it away, but still, it's cool. It's not just to raise a family. Families are great, but sometimes they're a disaster. We all know that, right? <laughs> Why am I here? It's because you've been sent. No, no, I'm only here for three years. That's okay. That's okay. Some missionaries are only on the field in that one particular location for three years. You might only be here in Ann Arbor for three years or three months or whatever. But you've been sent here now. And guess what? The assignment's a tall one. It's not particularly easy to know when or how to share God's word with people. We've all been there. We've all thought, is this the moment? Is this the moment? And, nope, that wasn't the moment. And then later we're like, oh, that was the moment. And we've all had that. We all do that. I'm a pastor. I get it. It's hard. But we've been sent. This church has been sent here now. And you and I are to be the dirty-footed messengers taking the good news to the world. You know what the most exciting thing to me about this church is right now? It is not, it is not the building project, which is almost done. We're going to give an update in a couple weeks. It's really cool if you're like, oh, I haven't even seen it. I didn't even know there's a thing. It's a big thing. It's going to be great. I don't want to downplay our generosity or what this building is going to do. It's awesome. I'm thankful for it. Thank you, God. But it's not what makes me most excited about the next decades of this church. Because it's going to be so cool when we first get in there, and then in a year it's going to be very normal. It's like, yeah, this is, oh, it wasn't always like this, right? It's just a building. That's not what makes me most excited about this church in this city right now. We live in a town, I'm sure you've noticed this, where people are always leaving. Have you noticed this? Every spring, 200 of you are going to leave. About. Because you're going to graduate, you're going to finish your program, you're going to retire, you're going to go someplace warm. Don't do that. That's silly. Stay here. But you're going to do those things, and you're going to leave. And there's, there's sometimes a sense in us of like, this is, this is going to be, this just feels like a leaving church. No, no. What excites me in the decades to come is that instead of being a leaving church, we could be a sending church. 
that is not 200 people leaving. It's 200 people who have been infused with the good news who are now carrying that, and they're going, good news, good news, wherever you go. That's what excites me, that the Spirit of God is drawing more people together to be captured by the good news of Jesus and that he is sending us out into the world to be those messengers. Our church sets aside a portion of its budget every year to fund missionaries who preach the gospel from as close to U of M's campus to as far as Japan and everything in between. We also have a missionary residency program. Right now, there's a young woman named Clara who's in that program, and she is being trained up and equipped, and she will go through a missionary training school here in the next year or two, and she's going to be sent out to be a missionary in the world. We also have a pastoral residency program. You heard Alex preach a couple weeks ago on Romans chapter 8, where we've set aside monies because we want to pour into these people specifically. We're all messengers, but we also want to raise up and train people who are going to carry the good news with them into whatever community they're sent. Because how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone, how about without GBC people preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? It is a gift that God in his perfect plan has seen fit to put us here right now. He is sovereign, and we have this responsibility. So Camp Sovereignty was a great place. Camp Sovereignty was, was a beautiful reminder, but don't get frozen there. Recognize that there's also camp responsibility that's on each of us. And come back next week, we'll get to camp number three. But first, let's pray. Father, I ask that, <clears throat> that for all of us that are preaching, our gospel sharing, our teaching, whatever it is, our inviting, that it wouldn't just happen in church services and small groups, but it would happen in neighborhoods and in homes and in classrooms and dorm rooms. Father, I would ask that your spirit would move in all of us. For those who've been fighting the glasses going on, let them, let them stop and see the beauty and the brilliance of who Jesus is and what he is offering. And now, God, as we have a chance to take communion led by one of the elders today, would you, would you allow us to just experience your presence and to respond to you in our hearts? Pray this in Jesus' name.